this week. What is the long defeat? And how do we defeat it? But first, I'm Quinn Emmett, and this is Important Not Important. Science for people who give a shit. Hopefully that's you. Hit subscribe right now to get this newsletter and my conversations with the people working on the front lines of the future every single week. As always, you can find the email or web version and links to everything at importantnotimportant.com or write in your show notes in your podcast player. And now, today's big question. The late John Lewis called your right to vote precious, almost sacred, the most powerful nonviolent tool or instrument in a democratic society. Since Selma, since the Civil Rights Act and Voting Rights Act, since the Shelby County decision, voting rights have been expanded and then massively restricted all over again. Just recently in Wisconsin and Alabama, Republicans have fought to preserve minority power despite state Supreme Court rulings and against the clear sentiment of voters exercised despite illegal gerrymanders, threats of violence, and more. Across America these last five years, despite a growing population, nearly 2,000 polling places have been closed amid hundreds of new anti-voting laws and even more bills behind those. So it can understandably feel like the power structures of old will never, ever stop trying to take your sacred voice and vote away from you. And to be clear, they are trying to take your voice away from you. Many of you already know this. Your parents did. Your grandparents did. They never wanted you to have a voice or a vote in the first place. But through centuries of compound action across millions of people, new voices were incrementally allowed. New votes were cast and counted. New faces and perspectives entered the halls of power. Not that the kinds of people who forbade them in the first place ever actually gave up. Fuck no. Their tenacity, their seemingly inexhaustible resources and penchant for, I guess, just whisking Supreme Court justices wherever the fuck they want to go, and um, also the hate they have, well, it's easy to make you wonder, will we ever win? Can we ever just take a breath or take a year or an election off? If their insidious tactics and outright corruption make defeat inevitable? It's a fair question, but before we answer it, let's get some elves involved. Now, this may surprise you because I'm a fucking dork, but I don't necessarily believe in Tolkien's long defeat theory. You haven't heard of it? Maybe because you were a mature, functioning adult? That's fine. But you signed up for this. You were watching it or you're listening to it, so let's go ahead and talk about it anyways, because I promise it's actually relevant to how you're feeling right now. The long defeat theory which is specifically conversed to Martin Luther King's famous long arc bending towards justice, says that history is a long decline from perfection to a state of destruction when the forces of good win only occasional and incomplete victories against those of evil. That might sound familiar. Now that's just one fellow nerd's interpretation from the internet, but read this from Tolkien's own letters. I am a Christian, and indeed a Roman Catholic, so that I do not expect history to be anything but a long defeat, though it contains, and in a legend may contain some clearly and movingly, small, small samples or glimpses of final victory. Now look, I'm not 
on the friendliest terms with Catholicism, and perhaps more impactfully, unlike Tolkien, I didn't lose most of my friends in the trenches of World War I either. So, fair game, you know? Like so many who have served, Tolkien never really overcame his experiences and his grief. He claimed Middle-earth's fictional battles weren't directly inspired by the psalm. And then, of course, he got shit for his stories not being realistic enough. Fucking critics, man. But they sure as hell feel eerily and tragically derived from the Great War, as they call it. A war so horrific that people said another would never be fought. Hold on to that. A war with both bayonets and tanks, when penicillin was a dream, didn't exist. Even C.S. Lewis, another literary legend who loved wardrobes, a fellow Christian who was no stranger to allegory, and a World War I vet himself, reviewed Tolkien's main Lord of the Rings series. He said, This war has the very quality of the war my generation knew. It is all here. The endless, unintelligible movement. The sinister quiet of the front when everything is now ready the flying civilians, the lively, vivid friendships, the background of something like despair in the merry foreground, and such heaven-sent windfalls as a cachet of tobacco salvaged from a ruin. Tolkien buried himself in his work, in these worlds. He revealed his jaded intentions through his maps and his prose. This world would have bright spots, but the forces of evil were just too many. They would outlast his characters. They would outlast us. But World War ended, you said, right? That's the big thing. It, it, it ended. Let's keep going. Perhaps Tolkien's journey, his perspective, then, is closer to that than the half-elf, Lord of Rivendell, Elrond. Now, Tolkien, as we've talked about, was traumatized by World War I, a war with uncountable costs that basically ended in stalemate and armistice. That would be enough. They would never fight another one. But to me, it's actually what happened after World War I, after peace was salvaged amid a generation of young people sent to death, that I think most inspired his mainstream collection, The Lord of the Rings. Over the next 20 years, Tolkien bore witness to peace, yes, but only for 20 years. Soon after came the rise of Hitler in the Third Reich, and yet another World War, one where his sons were on the front lines. And after tens of millions of additional lives lost from Stalinburg to Bastogne to Okinawa to the fall of the Nazis, it's a timeline that neatly mirrors the writing and publishing of The Fellowship of the Ring, the first book in that series. Now look, none of this is rocket sciences. Many nerds before me have discussed this idea ad nauseum. I'm just doing a poor job of comparing it to the fight for voting rights or climate action or whatever. Or I will once I finish this part. Give me a minute. We're almost there. Meanwhile, well, not meanwhile, but you get the point. Elrond, the elf, the healer, spent a few thousand years slumming it in the, you know, Montecito of Middle-earth, basically. And along the way, he saw some shit, too, and some time in between, by Tolkien's own hand. The details are scattered across the big books and also a bunch of scattered tiny poems that I love. And in The Fellowship of the Ring, Elrond summarized the prospects for this future fellowship. He said, I have seen three ages in the west of the world, and many defeats, and many fruitless victories. Yikes. Later, ruminating more fully on Middle-earth's own arc towards justice, he expanded. Fruitless did I call the victory of the last alliance? Not wholly so. Yet it did not achieve its end. 
Sauron was diminished, but not destroyed. His ring was lost, but not unmade. The Dark Tower was broken, but its foundations were not removed, for they were made with the power of the ring, and while it remains, they will endure. And again, that's Elrond trying to put a happy face on what he's seen. So, you know, good luck, uh, hobbits and, and dwarves and men. No pressure. What I think he's saying, and what I think Tolkien was trying to say was, look, man, from everything I can tell, the job is never done. But here's the thing. Despite all the history and forces allied against that fellowship, they did have some relatively good luck, which is interesting. Because when you consider it, the odds were really firmly stacked against that crew. They persevered even against each other. But it required everyone stepping up and sacrificing everything. And it still almost didn't work. Now, whether you love the books or loathe them, the climactic turns at the end of The Return of the King, the third book, are telling. In the end, the culmination of three long ages of gods and elves and men, after six months of travel and torment, his dearest friends and thousands of their often reluctant allies sacrificing themselves as decoys at the Black Gate, just enormous losses masking his secret entrance into Mount Doom, the ring-bearer, Frodo, finally failed. This despite powerful, timely glyphs from Galadriel and Boromir's tragic, selfless fight against a phalanx of orcs, all to protect hobbits he'd only recently accosted, among other timely cheat codes like Gandalf the White. The ring was too strong. History was too strong. Darkness prevailed. Frodo failed at last. Until Gollum, whom Frodo had previously spared because he's a way better person than I'll ever be, gave it one last attempt to take back his precious at all costs. Frodo's grace blew up in his face, the long defeat nearly written in stone. Gollum got the One Ring, but here's the twist. He also paid the costs all the way down into the fire, and he inadvertently saved the day, for then at least, in what Tolkien described in his letters as a eucatastrophe, said the orphan Tolkien. The consolation of fairy stories, the joy of the happy ending, or more correctly, of the good catastrophe, the sudden joyous turn, for there is no true end to any fairy tale. This joy, which is one of the things which fairy stories can produce supremely well, is not essentially escapist, nor fugitive. In its fairy tale, or other world setting, it is a sudden and miraculous grace, never to be counted on to recur. It does not deny the existence of discatastrophe, of sorrow and failure. The possibility of these is necessary to the joy of deliverance. It denies, in the face of much evidence, if you will, universal final defeat, and insofar as Evangelium, giving a fleeting glimpse of joy, joy beyond the walls of the world, poignant as grief. It is the mark of a good fairy story, of the higher or more complete kind, that however wild its events, however fantastic or terrible the adventures, it can give to child or man that hears it, when the turn comes, a catch of the breath, a beat and lifting of the heart, near tour or indeed accompanied by tears, as keen as that given by any form of literary art, and having a peculiar quality. It produces its peculiar effect, because it is a sudden glimpse of truth. Your whole nature, chained in material cause and effect, the chain of death, feels a sudden relief 
as if a major limb out of joint had suddenly snapped back. Now, a less poetic version of his eucatastrophe is like a deus ex machina, right? Which always feels a little bit lazy, because that's not really how real life goes, where random shit happens to save the day, but look, the Writers Guild, including me, is still on strike, so you get what you get and you don't get upset. But let's think about that for a second. A sudden relief, as if a major limb out of joint, had suddenly snapped back. Now that's an interesting metaphor applied to change in America, right, or voting rights. A wonderful, wonderful country where the promise of equal rights remains steadfastly unfulfilled. So was the limb really ever in place here? A more apt version, should we succeed, might be the short videos we see all the time who have, of people who are blind who are able to see for the first time, or children who are deaf able to hear their mother's voice for the first time. Now, like any great challenge with enormous stakes, the road is not straight for us here. Not for deforestation, for lung cancer, decarbonization, for HIV, for long COVID, malaria, clean energy, or voting rights. There are wins, and there are devastating setbacks, and there's time in between, and work and grieving in between. You can attribute the wisdom to anyone from Batman's dad to any real person. The key is what happens when we get knocked down. The key is that we get back up again, right? However long it takes. And there's great news here. In reality, in modern times, which I told you I promised we'd get here, there are some real-world eucatastrophical-type reversals of late that simply wouldn't exist without your hard-earned vote. Senator Schumer's and Manchin secretly reviving what became the IRA, an imperfect, enormous renovation of American industry, with the goal to electrify everything and maybe save some Medicare participants some money, too. Um, mRNA vaccines becoming available to the vulnerable public years before traditional vaccines might have, because everyone in the world needed one, those were the stakes, and because of decades of work to make them effective and safe. Of course, the blue waves in 2018 and 2020, including Georgia, Georgia, those kept Trump from ever becoming fully operational and eventually voting him out altogether. And there's all the times in between. And here's where it comes together. I might not agree that the long defeat is real, but I do agree that bad guys are very real, that each of our time here is short, and that the work is never done, and we can only do it together. But that if we do, we can fucking win this thing. I agree that heroic journeys cannot be undertaken alone, not successful ones, at least. I often empathize with the very rational feeling that one small person or one small vote cannot change a huge world. The powers that be want you to feel that way. They've built systems to make it that way. They're obsessed with you feeling impotent and trapped, a doomer. I didn't fight in World War I, or any war. I've never had my voice or vote taken away. I'm acutely aware of how grief changes us, though, and how it can feel inescapable, at least for a time. I have suffered grief on a personal level I'm not super interested in revisiting, but I'm old enough and self-aware enough to have long acknowledged that loss is all around us. It is inevitable. It's part of this thing. Loss is what reminds us of the stakes, of the ticking clock. It is what prods us to procreate and galvanizes us to fight for air and water and an education and the right to vote. So, 
for the six of you who are still here, what does literally any of this have to do with voter suppression? That's the question. Here's a quote for you. The vote is the most powerful instrument ever devised by human beings for breaking down injustice and destroying the terrible walls which imprison people because they are different from others. And that is from President Lyndon B. Johnson. Let's get technical for a moment. Just a refresher. Throughout most of the United States, your vote should work like this. In federal elections, citizens vote for president and vice president as a single ticket. Voters in each state cast ballots for electors who are pledged to support that ticket. The candidate receiving a majority of electoral votes determined by the state population wins the white supremacist electoral college and becomes president. <sighs> Citizens also vote directly every six and two years, respectively, for senators and representatives in Congress on the same day they vote for president, which is convenient, and the candidate with the most votes in each contest wins the office, which is straightforward. Weirdly, the candidate who straight up wins the popular vote for president, literally who gets the most votes, doesn't always win, which is really stupid. Now, state and local elections. Again, sometimes on the same day but not always, citizens vote directly for state-level offices like governor, state legislators, and other state and local positions like school boards, and even sometimes judges. Candidates winning the most votes in the state or in each district or region within the state take the seats that are up for grabs. There's no electoral college at the state level, thank Christ, but they are still enormous efforts uh, being made to deny your vote, even after the fact. State elections operate independently from federal elections, which really has its pros and cons. The reality, though, the important thing to take away is they don't actually want you to do any of that. They definitely don't want black people to vote, and they still probably don't want women to vote, definitely not former prisoners. Nor do they want to reform or do away with the Electoral College or admit Washington, D.C., or anywhere else, as a state. That is the equivalent of just tossing the ring into the fire themselves. Game over. They do not do that. They are bad guys. In a post called What It All Means, I wrote, Imagine for a brief moment if your country had the highest maternal mortality rate among developed countries, but one half of your country's elected representatives claimed to be pro-life and wanted to make that country uh, great again. Just imagine that. So they voted consistently and proudly against baseline policies that supported pregnant people, parents, and children, all in the name of tax cuts for the wealthy, who require more or less none of those policies to survive or feed their children or bear them. In fact, they went further than voting against good policies. They have sought and often succeeded to eliminate past good policies while writing new bad ones that deprive even more pregnant people of health care, forcing them to have babies even if they were forcibly impregnated or if the baby is no longer actually alive, and then to be on the hook for providing them with life essentials. They've deprived local health departments and water utilities of the resources to evolve beyond fucking fax machines and lead pipes because government spending is evil. They gerrymandered districts through a variety of measures to achieve a simple outcome so black people cannot vote. From Michelle Alexander's The New Jim Crow, she quotes, The Census Bureau counts imprisoned individuals as residents of the jurisdiction in which they are incarcerated. Now, because most new prison construction occurs in predominantly white rural areas, white communities benefit from inflated population totals at expense 
of the urban, overwhelmingly, overwhelmingly minority communities from which the prisoners come. Yeah, that's what bad guys do. Hey everyone, it's Quinn, your host and the founder of Important Not Important. I'd like to take a quick minute to tell you about the INI or any, whatever we're calling it these days, membership and community. It's a gathering place really for our most dedicated shit givers, a place to connect and learn from one another and to have access to me outside of the newsletter and this podcast. We started it last year, and it's grown to hundreds of shit-givers from all kinds, from around the globe. I'm talking about teachers and investors, students, electricians, journalists, artists, scientists, and policymakers, and, and more. Members get exclusive access to our daily news homepage, which is very cool, and to much more top-of-mind weekly articles, research and tools that you can use and to stay ahead of the game, member-sourced action steps, twice-monthly book and culture recommendations that have nothing to do with the end of the world, virtual events, and of course, the membership Slack channel. Look, so many people come to us asking, what can I do? And we think we do a pretty good job of answering that question and providing context for the answer. But the best answers and the best perspective really come from the community, a wide-ranging community, and we would love for you to be a part of it, to feel supported yourself, and to contribute to discussions and actions alike. And of course, by becoming a member, you're directly supporting our work here and ensuring that we get to keep doing it. So if you'd like to learn more, head to importantnotimportant.com. And if you're already a reader, you can just hit the upgrade button at the top. If you're not, Go ahead and subscribe for free, and you'll see the option to become a member at whatever level works best for you. And as always, you can always find the link to become a member right in your show notes. So thanks for listening, and as always, thanks for giving a shit. Back to the show. And these culprits... These bad guys designed the systems that got us here and seek to design more. So I think we should both litigate the past and be hell-bent on imagining and building a better today and tomorrow. So that's from that. But again, the receipts are in, more recently from the Center for Public Integrity. A type of law first created after the end of slavery to prohibit black men from voting prevented more than 4.6 million Americans from participating in the 2022 midterm elections. 4.6 million. 48 states stripped voting rights from people convicted of felonies. No small decision in a country with the highest incarceration rate in the world. A third of those affected, despite representing less than 15% of the population, are black. So, yeah, look, we gotta do the whole thing, right? We're gonna have to keep recruiting new candidates and then campaigning for them and then electing them, we have to keep marching and keep fighting for more people, for everyone, to be able to vote all of the time. But while we do that, we can also make elections themselves much better. Automatic voter registration, universal early voting, voting by mail, drop boxes everywhere. You get it. In fact, Representative Terry Sewell just this week reintroduced the John R. Lewis Voting Rights Advancement Act, which would modernize and restore the full protections of the Voting Rights Act. We can choose to do this, to protect your vote, to make it easier to vote like Pennsylvania did this week. For decades, Congress actually did exactly that over and over and over again. 
but they won't anymore. So we can do even more. Let's for a moment talk about what many of you are probably thinking about. I know I am. Ranked choice voting. Here's how ranked choice voting works, where it's actually in place. Ready? Okay. Instead of picking just one candidate, voters simply rank their choices. I know. That's it. Here's where it gets less simple, but drastically more effective for democracy. If no single candidate initially has a majority of votes, the clear last place candidates are kicked off the island, and your votes are redistributed based on next preferences until one candidate finally gets over 50%. That can take a while sometimes, but it's much more appealing. Here's why. With ranked choice voting, candidates theoretically aim to appeal to more voters instead of just their little base. Implementing RCV throughout the U.S. could make every vote matter and better reflect the will of the majority, making sure the eventual winner actually has broad support. It could maybe make voters more thoughtful about the candidates and the actual issues, and not maybe be such dicks to each other. But look, and there's going to be some haters here, getting exclusively focused on ranked choice, despite a growing chorus of users and evangelists, myself among them, is like, you know, the wet dreams I have about covering every parking lot and big box store in the U.S. with solar panels. Yeah, the flood of Chinese panels and converters mean we could cover all that shit tomorrow, but because building new transmission is still a permitting nightmare, there'd be nothing to connect all the new panels to. Literally, just look at the thousands of projects already in the queue. Thousands of them. So none of the actions, rooftop solar or ranked choice voting, is a silver bullet. We get to walk and chew gum at the same time. Ranked choice is fucking rad, no doubt. But when there are huge power structures, the legacy of slavery and the Jim Crow past, still fighting every single day to formally, technically take away your ability to vote at all, often by literally removing places where you can vote or drop your at-home ballot, it doesn't matter if we're talking about ranked choice, a fistful of straws, or a sorting hat. Your vote doesn't fucking count. Because sometimes they suppress your vote in subtle ways, in others, not so much. We have to think more comprehensively. From the bottom up, we don't do gatekeeping here, right? Just the opposite. We have to do all of these things we've been talking about. Now, lastly, I would be remiss if I concluded this part without a brief mention of the less tangible way they take away your voice. The more insidious way. And I want to be clear that both American political parties are equally guilty here. And I'm talking about the moderate or centrist gerontocracy machine that is terrified of losing their seats, but especially to people who do not look like them. That is, people who have held or still hold hourly jobs, student and credit debt that those folks have never had, who've suffered through air pollution and flooding and foreclosures they couldn't dream of who failed to find or afford childcare, who've had abortions, who've had miscarriages, who worked in childcare or elderly care until they couldn't afford to do any of that work anymore. As my friend Amanda Littman of Run For Something said on Threads last week, the problem with the gerontocracy is not that any one leader is too old. It's that we have a system that privileges and protects old leaders at the expense of bringing new perspectives to the table. Now look, I love a good productive, right-sized government. I love paying taxes to help people. 
example, what the current occupants do is they fire up these machines of theirs, fueled by vast dark wealth and their incumbent power, to maintain the status quo, to support other incumbents, no matter how old or toothless, literally, to marginalize young progressive candidates who intimately understand and live the issues and who give a shit. They do this all in the name of you just not turning out the vote. That's right. One of the most effective pieces of their recipe is simply successfully demoralization. On the other hand, good news. Bad guys are real. As David Rooks wrote this week, as long as Trump is leading it, the Republican Party cannot be reformed. It can only be deprived of power. Because the last few elections have proved having an honest-to-goodness bad guy on one ticket can definitely improve turnout. So, we've got that going for us. Look, folks, great news, as usual, you are not alone here. No one's asking you to be Frodo and carry the ring to Mordor alone, or even with just your best bud, Sam. Katniss didn't do it alone. Neither did Furiosa, Psyche, Atalanta, or Ray. They all had people, eventually, to an extent. We've got people, millions before us, and so many, if we get this right, to come after us. And there are a variety of amazing groups working right now to turn this ship around. Census by census, district by district, candidate by candidate, vote by vote, election by election, and they need your help. They want you to be able to vote. And then they want you to actually fucking vote. They're nonpartisan voting rights groups, and they're get-out-the-vote groups. And they need your help right now. Here's another quote for you. One of the penalties for refusing to participate in politics is that you end up being governed by your inferiors. That's from Plato. He said that 2,400 fucking years ago. Look, there's groups like the Environmental Voter Project focused solely on getting out environmental voters regardless of candidate or party. There's groups like Run for Something, who exclusively recruit and support local and state-level progressive candidates under 40. There's groups like Headcount, who register people to vote at concerts, which must be nice. There's new organizations like Voters of Tomorrow, by Gen Z, for Gen Z. And there's new organizations like The Third Act, by voters over 60, for voters over 60. There's long-term organizations like the ACLU, League of Women Voters, Fair Fight, the Florida Rights Restoration Coalition, Democracy Works, and more, and even more. There's groups with short-term PACs that support a dynamic slate of candidates, like uh, Climate Cabinet, or Swing Left, and so many more. Now look, you probably noticed some themes running through the groups above, so I want to conclude by quickly reiterating our mandate here. We are biased towards action, but not towards any particular party, person, or company. Instead, we often and specifically call out both good actors and bad actors who are measurably working towards or preventing progress at every single level of power. Your fears have always been well-placed. They don't want you to vote. They certainly don't want you to run. They do not want you to have power with your vote or with a gavel. Because little wins add up over time into big wins, which builds long-term power. That's compound action. Understanding who, what money, and what policies are driving progress or standing in the fucking way are key to actually bending the arc further and faster for more people and to avoid the long defeat forever. 
Thanks for listening. Here's your relevant action steps. Number one, donate to protecting voting rights and advocating for democracy with fair fight. Number two, volunteer to bring together conservatives, progressives, and everyone in between to fix America's political system with Represent Us. Number three, get educated about quick, easy daily actions you can take to save democracy by subscribing to the Chopwood Carry Water newsletter. And last, be heard about fair elections and add your name to the End Gerrymandering Pledge. Oh, and of course, run for your state or local office with Run for Something, if you're under 40. If you're over 4 and 8, just fucking donate. That's it for this week. If you got feedback, questions, opinions, thoughts, please email them to me at questions at importantnotimportant.com. Share this with a friend, if you could, and hit subscribe to get next week's issue straight into your podcast player. To go deeper, visit importantnotimportant.com. Thank you for being a part of our community, and thanks for giving a shit.